0: Hello, welcome back to the Drop Step podcast. I'm your host, Jack Quantrill, and today is episode five. We are on the eve of NBA free agency. It's not necessarily a massive year in terms of the free agency market, so we're going to steer clear of that until we know exactly what's gone on and the dust settles. We know what rosters look like as we go into this long off-season, and I'm bringing you the second episode in the First In Class series. For those of you that didn't listen, First In Class is going to be our staple off-season series. It's draft-based. What we've done is we've organised the 32 best draft classes of all time and we're pitting them up against each other in a March Madness-style 1v1 tournament. So episode one was 2009 versus 2012 headlined by the likes of Steph Curry, James Harden and Blake Griffin on 2009, up against Draymond Green, Anthony Davis and Damian Lillard on 2012. Um, It was a really interesting conversation, actually, because we got to explore the talent versus team fit argument with 2009 having better headline players, but 2012 having a more conventional NBA roster. Anyway, the vote went to both Twitter and Fanspo. Check out Fanspo, you'd probably use it if you're looking to test out fake trades on the trade machine. And in the end, 2009 won out. That sort of small ball, ultra fun lineup of Steph, James Harden, Drew Holiday, Danny Green and Blake Griffin. Just this ultra small ball, sort of Houston Rockets style, 130 points a game team, beat out the 2012 team. So they are going to be... The first team progressing through to the quarterfinals. So that's going to be pretty interesting. We'll see who their matchup is in a few weeks. But today's episode is all about two all time draft classes and for very different reasons. So the first draft we'll be discussing is Larry Bird's draft, 1978. He is undoubtedly a top 10 player of all time. I think it makes sense to be chatting about him now, seeing as Dennis Rodman comments have surfaced this week saying he'd play in Europe if he was around in today's game quite frankly that's ridiculous I'm going to be taking you through a couple of reasons why I think that's ridiculous but he's flanked by a really high level supporting cast and they just blend together to make what fundamentally is a really modern NBA team which is pretty amazing when you consider that draft took place 45 years ago but they're up against a true all-time draft class perhaps the best draft class of all time. I think we said in the first episode that a lot of people hold 1984 in that regard some might have 2003 but 1996 the Kobe draft is undoubtedly up there. They've arguably got the greatest wealth of depth of any class in this tournament and I'm really going to enjoy taking you through who's starting because there are some tough decisions to make there, how they're going to play and how some of your favourite players might look in slightly different roles because with the amount of talent they have at their disposal, I'm going a little bit mad scientist and giving some players some different responsibilities to what they might have had in their career. But without further ado, let's get into the 1978 draft. What I'm going to do is take you through you know, the top 10 picks, what the league was like at that stage, our starting five, our three reserves, and ultimately how I see them all playing together before we get into that 96 draft. So, starting at the point for the 78 draft is Michael Ray Richardson. Michael Ray is one of the NBA's all-time what-if players, a mercurially talented point guard Richardson earned comparisons to Magic Johnson in his first few years in the league with the New York Knicks and he earned himself three consecutive All-Star Game selections. He led the league in assists and steals in the 79-80 season and recorded a league-high seven triple-doubles in that same year. Michael Ray was long at six foot six, and was blessed with fantastic speed and a great eye for a pass. Like Magic, he pushed in transition, and he looked like a modern-day player before drug misuse curtailed his career somewhat. After his age 26 season, Richardson was erratic, being traded, despite that trio of all-star selections, to Golden State, where his stance took a turn for the worse. At 28, he was traded to the New Jersey Nets and famously knocked off the reigning Philadelphia 76ers in the first round as an eighth seed, and... After the 83-84 playoffs, Richardson returned to his best, playing 82 games and making his fourth all-star appearance. But the season after, the drug issues seemed to resurface. He played 46 games and finally, at age 31, Michael Ray was suspended for substance abuse issues and never played in the league again. Nevertheless, in this team, Richardson is going to be serving a similar role to Dennis Johnson on the Celtics, the same way he played with Larry Bird. I want him initiating offensive sets from the top of the key, finding Larry in his favoured spots and helping move the ball on what should be a super fluid team. Richardson was even a great rebounder too, collecting seven boards a game, grabbing and going, particularly in his Knicks days. He's locking down perimeter players at the point of attack and he's a really valuable release valve for this offence. While the stats don't make for pretty reading, Sugar Ray had a really pretty jumper that he could get to on the move or off the catch. After the podcast, I'd really recommend watching some highlights. He just jumps off the screen as a modern day player in 80s basketball. The handle, like most guys back then... Looks a little stiff, but Ray could do it all on the court. And it made me consider what he really could have been had he been on the straight and narrow. Michael Ray had the talent to match nearly anyone in the league. And for that reason, he's going to be huge asset to the 78 team. And I just wish we could see these guys playing together because they are going to be on some San Antonio Spurs 2014 type vibes. The ball movement is going to be insane. The passing and... I I just, I really, really wish we could watch it. So Michael Ray is going to be our guy at the point. Slightly less to say about our shooting guard. You might have used him on 2K. We've got Reggie Theus at the shooting guard. So Reggie is a complete luxury in this team. We're going to be taking him from his Kings days, despite the fact that he did really well in his time in Chicago. But he really showed off his playmaking skills, posting eight assists plus seasons in three consecutive years, while also averaging 20 points a game. Reggie was a really skilled offensive player with a silky jumper who could play on and off ball. At six foot seven, he's adding great size at the two-guard position. And again, with that playmaking talent, I see him adapting to a ball-movement-orientated offence, spearheaded by Larry. Theus admittedly wasn't a brilliant defender, but he's going to be passable in this group, leaving tougher assignments to Richardson our upcoming small forwards, and perhaps Larry. So that's our backcourt. We've got Richardson and Theus partnered. Uh, not necessarily the biggest names, but a lot of talent. And coming in at the small forward position is Michael Cooper, Laker legend. To me, Cooper was Mr 3 and D before it was cool. He was a defensive player of the year, a high volume three-point shooter for the time, and Cooper fits right next to Bird and the other complementary offensive players. Cooper shot the second most threes in the 86-87 season and knocked them down at a respectable 38%. He was a dead eye from the three-throw line as well, 83% for his career. Cooper on this team is spacing from outside, getting out in transition and taking on tough defensive assignments. Larry actually cited him as the best defensive player he faced in his career. Cooper had the flexibility to guard down and up the lineup too. So he's just going to be so, so useful for the 78 team. But lastly, Cooper was a really great passer for a role player. He was often tasked with taking on point guard duties when Magic sat during those heyday Showtime Lakers years. And Ben Taylor had his assist numbers per 36 without Magic on the floor at a ludicrous 13 per game. So on another team, Cooper probably could have been more of a star, but he won a ton with the Lakers and is one of the best sixth men of all time. He's going to fit in on both sides of the floor, moving the ball quickly and spacing from deep on the offensive end. And he's going to be our premier defender on the other end of the court too. So just a dream role player, the kind of guy that you want to put next to stars. And luckily, at the power forward spot, he's going next to one of the biggest stars the game has ever seen in Larry Bird. Larry is the absolute diamond of this team. We're going to be taking his 85 to 88 stretch as our sample and comfortably conclude that we're getting one of the best to ever play the game for the 78 team. Larry was the three-point era's first great shooter. He was the first player to record 50, 40, 90 seasons. He had them back-to-back from 86 to 87 and 87 to 88 and is easily one of the smartest players to have ever played the game. At his peak, Bird was a phenomenal shooter, a crafty finisher, creative scorer, highly effective defensive player and one of the best passers of all time. Again, I'm going to recommend go and watch Ben Taylor's Greatest Peaks episode on Bird. And what you'll notice is the connective passing, the insane reads, hit heads behind the back passes. Bird simply dominated the game in all areas. He rebounded on bad shooting nights. He was recording triple doubles in final series. He might be the biggest ceiling raising player in the history of the game. Bird could modulate his game around his teammates. He never recorded over 30% usage for a season and had just as much off-ball threat as he did on the ball. Just look at his relationship with Walton in the 86 season and see what he could do with better players. Bird is quite simply one of the best and greatest basketball minds of all time. He could play in any era and bring career-best performances out of his teammates. Bird is gonna be the heart and the soul of the 78 team. And I think the players around him compliment him just as much as that Juggernaut 86 team he played on with the Celtics. You probably know them from Bill Simmons mentioning them every podcast, but they were truly one of the greatest teams of all time. And while Larry arguably had a stacked team, he is the number one reason why the Celtics had so much success back in the eighties and I would just love to transport him into today's game. I don't know who I'd want to see him most on. Personally, I'd really love if he could somehow join the Kings and they lean into this ball movement, transition, just the beautiful offensive kind of game that they run with all the movement. I think he would be an incredible fit there. But the point is, Larry could play with anyone. Put him with your grandma, she's going to look good if she can knock down a jumper Larry is the perfect teammate and he's surrounded by a bunch of great teammates too. So I think that our first four players are immaculate. They fit together incredibly well. And really, there's not necessarily a weak point yet in this roster, which is unfortunately where we have to get to the centre position. It's by no means a weakness, but in comparison to some of the classes that we're going to be discussing in this series... 78 is weak on the centre front, but coming in and playing the five is Michael Thompson. He was the number one pick of this draft and these days he's more famous for being Clay's dad. But Michael was a really good player in his outright and he manned the five spot for the 78 team. Thompson was a mobile big man with a soft touch around the basket. He had an eye for a pass and versatility to take on tough matchups in the post. Thompson was brought in by the Lakers specifically to guard Kevin McHale during those years where they inevitably faced each other in the finals. And while he's probably the weakest player of the starting five, Thompson has championship pedigree. He was a reasonable free throw shooter and he fits in with the team's pacey transition approach. I see Bird and Thompson running the two-man game and Thompson being found for easy buckets with layoff passes from Bird, Richardson, And our backup point guard. At his best from ages 27 to 29, Thompson was a plus on both sides of the floor for Portland and posted 20 points and 11 rebounds in 81-82. Concerns would be that Thompson's too lightweight to play against some of the all-time great centres, but he's a starting level big surrounded by complementary talent and I'm sure he's going to do just fine for the 78 team. So that's our starting five and we're going to move straight on to our sixth man. This is our aforementioned backup point guard. And honestly, he can feel really hard done by to not be in the starting five. That's Mo Cheeks. Mo just misses out because Michael Ray's peak was that bit more explosive. And I think he fits better with the transition style that we're going to be looking to play on the offensive side of the ball. That being said, Cheeks was an efficient, low turnover, high-assist, defensively dependable Hall of Fame point guard, who, up until the arrival of James Harden in Philadelphia 40 years later, was their most talented point guard, perhaps in their history. First and foremost, Cheeks was an unselfish player who facilitated for anyone he was playing with, whether that be Julius Irving and Andrew Toney on the Championship 83 Sixers team, or Charles Barkley later in his career. The big men that he played with like Daryl Dawkins and Caldwell Jones. Or cutters and slashers like Bobby Jones. He could get the ball to anyone and he was really quick to move it when you look back at the film. He was really, really dependable when it came to finishing at the basket. He was good with either hand. And again, much like Michael Ray, he's one of these guys that really pushed the pace. And particularly in his younger years, would streak down the court and get to the cup lightning quick. Like most players of the era, you know, Larry Bird and Michael Cooper and even Reggie Theus to an extent are slight outliers. Cheeks didn't shoot any threes at all, really. I don't think he ever got to above one a game, but he was reliable from the charity stripe, finishing with a career average of 79% from the free throw line. So I think he could space a little bit. I I watched some highlights back and off the catch, he he could certainly knock down a few shots here and there, but. Much like Michael Ray's role in this team, when Mo Cheeks comes in, it's just going to be his job to facilitate, keep the bench guys involved and, you know, get players the ball in their favoured spots. And he showed that he was capable of doing that through their career. So, yeah, Mo Cheeks is our sixth man. He's unlucky not to be the starting guy, but we've just opted for upside starting Michael Ray Richardson. Our seventh man and our sort of sub forward is an absolute luxury. We've got Mike Mitchell coming off the bench as our seventh man, and Mitchell was a key part of the San Antonio Spurs teams that made back-to-back conference finals runs in '82 and '83. He's a six-foot-seven small forward who was good for twenty points a game on relatively decent efficiency. He shot eighty-one percent from the free throw line for his career, and During those San Antonio Spurs days, he was racking up seven and a half rebounds a game. So you get the idea of what Mike Mitchell is. And like we said, just a real luxury to come off the bench. And Mitchell was a reliable playoff performer. Um, In that conference finals in 83 against the Lakers, he put up an efficient 25.7 a game in their eventual loss to the LA team. But Mitchell was able to shoot from all over the floor. He had a quick first step and made a number of long twos which indicate that his jumper would have held up from three-point range if that's what he'd been asked to do. Like we said he was a good rebounder a little bit suspect defensively and a lot of his looks were set up by the likes of Johnny Moore and I think that with either Cheeks or any of the starters getting him the ball he's not going to have any issues racking up the points when he comes off the bench for the 78 team. So That's our first seven and now we finish off with our backup big man. And I think I mentioned at the top that the bigs are the weakness of this team. Michael Thompson is a perfectly fine starter. We'd ideally have him coming off the bench as he did in those Lakers days. But our five coming off the bench is Dave Corzini. To summarise him quickly, Corzini was a reliable big man who started for the Bulls and the Spurs through his career He was unafraid to do the dirty work. He was a tenacious rebounder and a solid defensive player that can play spot minutes for Thompson. But he's going to be outmatched by more athletic centres and he's not going to be providing that much rim protection. So that is our 78 draft. I think, like I said at the top, they're a really modern team that's going to look to push the pace. They've got a lot of kinetic passing capability with Bird, with Richardson. Theus, Michael Cooper, the ball should just be zipping around and they can also space in a very modern way. They can have that one in in Michael Thompson and four guys in the perimeter that are all comfortable shooting from deep. They were all good scorers from long too and in the case of Cooper, Theus and Bird, all could stretch to three-point range. So with a little bit of modern day NBA training and sort of redefining that mindset I think they'd be a dead-eye team from beyond the arc and the other thing I like is there's no one selfish on this team like we said Larry is going to maximize whoever he's playing with and I see him having a really good relationship with Michael Thompson Michael Thompson actually played in Portland Trailblazers systems that were a hangover from the Bill Walton days where cutting was emphasized and the playmaking of the big man was a really really big part of their offense so i like the idea of the michael and the larry two-man game i love the idea of michael cooper spacing from three mo cheeks is a really reliable guy to come off the bench and mike mitchell while he might mess up the flow of the ball a little bit he only averaged 1.9 assists through his career This is a guy with a really reliable jumper who can help out on the boards as well, which is good because we don't have a traditional power forward to turn to. So I'm really, really excited to explore how this team is going to match up against the 96 team. They're certainly underdogs, but like we said, they're modern and I think they stand a puncher's chance. And I'm going to try and make that argument after we've discussed the wealth of talent that the 96 team has. So... The 96 draft took place in New Jersey back in June 96 and is just an all-time draft. The top five picks, A.I., Marcus Camby, Sharif abdul rahim Stefan Marbury and Ray Allen were all hits. But even further down the draft, you get Kobe, Peja and Steve Nash taken consecutively at 13, 14 and 15. With Jermaine O'Neill one pick after. Sorry Tony Delt, you aren't on that level at number 16. The number one pick could have been very different. AI had a felony overturned after four months of prison time back in 93, so he nearly missed out on college ball as a whole. Kobe was originally drafted to the Charlotte Hornets, only to be traded for Vlady Divac on draft night. He forced his way out of Charlotte. They didn't do that willingly. All in all, a third of the first round picks went on to make All-Star. It produced three separate MVPs and two defensive players of the year. This draft is insane and the list of cuts might shock you. Right off the back, we've got Ben Wallace, four-time Defensive Player of the Year, Stefan Marbury, Sharif Abdul-Rahim, and Zydrunas Ilgauskas. None of them are even making the roster. Five-time champion Derek Fisher isn't making the team. You could cut the eight guys that we actually use and argue that the remainder of the 96 draft still makes it into the top 32 draft classes of all time. Anyway. Let's get into it. So starting at the point for our 96 team is two-time MVP, eight-time All-Star, Steve Nash. I'm going to start by saying Nash is one of the 10 best passers of all time. He's arguably one of the 10 best offensive players of all time and one of the 10 best shooters of all time. To put those statements into perspective, Steve Nash was a member of the 50-40-90 club four times in his career. During his second MVP year he became such an efficient shooter that the only guy I can think to compare his numbers to are KD. That 6 7 season Nash shot 67% at the rim, 55% on floaters, 50% from the mid-range, 52% from long two and 45% from three. This is a guy who was six foot three in shoes with no bounce and back problems at that point in his career. He ran the best offense the league had seen since the Showtime Lakers under Mike Dantoni. He topped the assist charts five times in his career and he was everybody's favourite teammate. He made so many people so much money. Nash is the perfect complimentary player. He's going to find shooters with pinpoint accuracy, run the pick and roll, Pretty much better than anyone to ever do it. Find his way to the rim with that airtight handle and insane patience. And when he doesn't have the ball, like we said, he's a top 10 shooter of time. Not only is Steve Nash starting over AI for the 96 team, but he is the engine of this offense, which could be interpreted as a crazy thing to say with our two guard, Kobe Bean Bryant. The top five champ, 15-time All-NBA, yes 15, two-time finals MVP and 2007 a league MVP was just as complete a player as you'll ever see in the league. Kobe grew up idolising Michael and while he didn't quite have the same burst, he just about did everything else as well as the greatest of all time. The Kobe we're taking is from the 07-08 to 9-10 period a.k.a. Solo Championship Kobe. This is a guy who got embarrassed in the finals by the Lakers' arch-rival Celtics, came back in the two following seasons and took home a ring each time. I'm not going to gush about stats with Kobe because they just don't paint the full picture. He had every counter in the book. He probably invented 10 of them. He's one of the greatest tough shot makers of all time and he had better playmaking feel than anyone gives him credit for because of the Kwame Brown Lakers days. And he plays all NBA level defence. If the game slows down, Kobe is going to get the ball in his spots but I still want Nash to be running the offence so for the majority of the game, Kobe's going to be getting out in transition, cutting, spacing and while he's also going to get his looks in the post and running pick and roll, most of all, 2008 Olympic style Kobe is going to be playing the most suffocating defense you can imagine because this is a guy who to borrow Bill Simmons's book of basketball phrase learn the secret this is a guy who will do everything he can to win so it's without doubt he is our two guard star of the team even if he isn't going to have the ball every time it goes up the court that brings us on to our three What do you want next to Steve Nash, one of the 10 best offensive players of all time, and Kobe, one of the 10 best players of all time? How about adding a top five shooter of all time? We've got Ray Allen playing at the three. Again, I feel like I don't need to tell you numbers. Ray is the third best three-point shooter of all time. In his Sonics days, he was good for an efficient 25-a-game, and he has as much off-ball versatility as pretty much anyone in NBA history. Ray's job in this team is going to be to space and move. I want him coming off curls, darting to the corners on fast breaks and attacking closeouts generated by Nash, Kobe and AI when they run the pick and roll or when they get double teamed. Younger NBA fans like me know Ray as the deadly spot up guy we saw in Miami and Boston. But in his heyday, he had a smooth handle and the athleticism to throw down. And... On top of being the perfect complementary offensive piece, Ray was a sturdy defender. He did a great job of slowing Kobe down during that aforementioned 08 finals. And we know he won't let the 96 team down on either end of the court. So they're our first three players. And coming in at the four is perhaps the definition of a stretch four. We're going to go with Peja Stoyakovic, And everything I just said about role for Ray Allen, ditto for Peja. Another dead eye, in his peak, Stojakovic finished third in MVP voting and was good for 20 a game on 60% plus true shooting. Stojakovic is a pure shooter, someone who could do some off the dribble, but in this team, like we said, same as Ray, get out in transition, stay in the corners and space for the other guys to work their magic. He shot at least 37% from three after the first season of his career in the NBA, and he had highs of 43 to 44% on seven attempts per game, so he is the definition of a dead-eye. He's a little bit slow on his de- on his feet defensively, but his length will help him contest and cover space. The 6'10'' Croatian isn't a massive help on the boards, with about six per game during his peak in Sacramento But with the gravity he's going to provide, it really doesn't matter. There isn't a single player I would rather put next to those three than Peja Stojakovic because he's a guy that's willing to make the right pass. He played in complex offensive systems like the Rick Adelman Sacramento offense. He's played with ball dominant players like Chris Paul in New Orleans and even picked up a ring in that amazing Dallas 2011 run as an old-timer coming off the bench when Dirk secured his legacy and secured that ring for the Mavericks. So he is our four. And then at the five, we're actually going to maybe make a little bit of a left field turn for some of you. We're picking a guy that never made an all-star team, but I want Marcus Canby as the centre for the 1996 team. The one-time Defensive Player of the Year beats out Jermaine O'Neill, who's our bench big man. That's right, we have a six-time All-Star coming off the bench because he's just an absolute anchor on defence. Camby was a four-time block champ and consistently a 12-game a rebounder at his peak in Denver. He was a great leaper with exceptional timing, a really stout post-defender who had a habit for stripping big men and drivers alike as they looked to get their shots up, and a super intelligent help defender that was mobile enough to play the four early in his career. Camby is a brilliant complement to our starting four and will be the beneficiary of all their gravity on the defensive end. He's going to get super easy looks, set hard screens, roll to the rim. And while he can't jump out of the gym like Amari, has, he's athletic enough to grab lobs from Nash and co when they're putting them up there. So that's our starting five. Some contentious decisions in there for sure. But this is a perfectly spaced team with a rim runner, three and a half guys who can create off the dribble and enough defensive talent in Kobe and Canby to cover up for weaker players on that end like Paja and Nash. So I think this is probably going to be the best starting five we discussed throughout this entire process. There might be one or two to rival it. In fact, thinking about it, I'm sure there are at least two, three teams with a little bit more star talent. But our sixth man for the 96 draft can only be one guy we have AI the answer coming off the bench to put it simply AI is just an all-time player he's better than Peja than Ray Allen and would have been more effective than Steve Nash if he was playing in a system without spacing as a solo offensive engine but he just doesn't fit as well as the other guys do in our starting five Despite the fact that Iverson embraced off-ball movement, you're worried about dominating the ball and keeping it out of the hands of the likes of Nash and Bryant. He's too short to move Kobe to the three, and ultimately he just really works well as a sixth man in this team. AI could take anyone off the dribble one-on-one. No one is ever going to forget that crossover he had on MJ in his rookie season. He had a reliable pull-up jumper and a great eye for a pass. At his peak in Philadelphia, he led the league in scoring, got himself to the line 10 times a game and could score at all three levels, all while winning the Steel's title three years on the spin. Iverson's role is going to be to come in when Nash sits and play with spacing and our big man, who's a little bit more offensively capable than can be. I mean, to put it mildly, he's way more capable. He'll provide a crazy injection of energy, push the pace and keep scoring up when our primary guys go to the bench. So he's going to be our sixth man. It's a tough decision. I'm sure if there was a comment section, you guys would be absolutely killing me because he's probably Twitter's top five favorite players. He's definitely in there. But to add to the ire and a little bit of the conjecture this decision might get, our backup big man is Jermaine O'Neal. I originally had O'Neill in at the starting five, but again, he was more of a four than a five in his peak. He's a great mid post guy, a tough shot maker, but not necessarily a great complement to Nash. And he needs more touches than he was going to get in the starting five. So O'Neill is going to provide scoring, solid rebounding and shot creation off the bench for this team. Of course, at his peak this was a really dangerous guy in the league. He was averaging about 24 points per game for the Pacers and that wasn't just an empty stats kind of points guy. He was doing this on 50 win teams and really spearheading championship efforts. So I think he's really unlucky when you think about the era that he's come from. A guy that had to compete with Tim Duncan Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki year after year isn't going to have that many all-NBA selections, but he's really underrated over the course of time. He at his peak was getting himself to the line 7 times a game. He had one season in 0405 when he got to the line 9 times a game and overall just a really really solid player. And In most other teams, he's going to be starting. But just because we've got such a wealth of offensive talent for 96, he's pushed to our bench, big man. Because I think you've got to prioritise fit over talent when you already have that starting five. So he is our seventh man. And lastly, rounding out the roster, we needed a wing. We got Antoine Walker. He's not the best, but he's all right. He's a willing shooter, probably way too willing, and he's gonna get open looks considering the offensive talent on the team. He's just gonna be a minutes eater who won't be on the court a ton to let us down in big moments, but I really like Walker for his rebounding, his willingness to scale down for the sake of team success. Walker played thirty-seven and a half minutes a game for Miami in their 06 championship run, only on ten shots a night, and for a guy that was regarded as a shot chucker, uh A rational confidence guy he showed that he's got that championship mentality and yes he's the butt of a few Bill Simmons jokes but I prefer him to Sharif Abdul Rahim or another defensive center like a Ben Wallace because you need a wing this team was just short of wings so he's going to be the guy that rounds out our 96 roster so there are two teams I think it's pretty clear who's going to win, but I'm just going to talk about the matchups and who's guarding who, how each team is going to play and ultimately why I think the 96 team would come out on top. I'm pretty sure all of you are going to agree, but I'm going to just make the case for 78 and just talk through some of the intricacies of the matchup. So making the case for the 78 team, because we've said how we want 96 to play, just picture Supercharged Phoenix Suns with a little bit of Kobe ISO in there, an incredible six man coming off the bench, bench big man scoring, and just the best spacing you've ever seen. So, super tough ass to stop that. But if I had to come up with a group of defenders to do it, I've definitely got a couple of the guys that I'd want. So Michael Ray is a brilliant, brilliant player and a starting point to have on Steve Nash. He was light on his feet. He was really, really quick down the floor. And I think that with his length and his six-six frame, he's going to be one of the few guards that's going to be able to bother Steve Nash and maybe throw him off his game. At least have the speed and the speed of thought as well. That really jumps out when you watch highlights that Michael Ray perhaps is going to be able to help and then recover to Nash if he's in an off-ball capacity. So I like Michael Ray Richardson as a guy that can slow Steve Nash down. If I had to come up with a Kobe defender, Michael Cooper is probably the guy that I'm going to go to. Again, six foot seven, super fast on his feet, studied the guys that he was playing, and just never gave up. So Michael Cooper is going to be someone that like we said Ray Allen did in the 08 finals, is going to be able to give Kobe problems and at least keep his efficiency down. Larry is going to be able to, I I think we probably end up putting him on Peja because I don't want him running through a ton of screens and running around the floor after Ray Allen. So he's going to be able to, Saginoff is is difficult, is dangerous, but he's going to have a little bit more of a free roll because he's not going to have to account for All that movement, and Pedro isn't going to get too many chances to create off the ball or run around Carls and pin down. So, Larry's going to be able to put that insane supercomputer IQ to good use and jump into the passing lanes, generate steals, get his team going in transition where they're going to be best. And defensively, I don't mind Michael Thompson. Like we said, he played a little bit more as a four, but I think. He's not up against a giant and he's not up against someone that can create one-on-one in terms of Marcus Camby. This is just going to be a lob threat and a play finisher. So Thompson is fairly quick on his feet and he's going to be able to react in pick and roll. I I don't know how mobile he's going to be. That may be where the argument falls down. And then obviously Reggie is going to be our guy on Ray Allen. And while he's a really talented offensive player, There's a little bit of a slouch defensively. So I worry about Ray getting open off a movement, particularly because those sort of sets weren't as prevalent back then. And I, I think that you might run into some issues there. But Mo Cheeks can also come in and defend AI. I suppose off the bench at the seven spot, we've got Mike Mitchell who can come in and help on the boards. The 96 team for all of their spacing and offensive threat and talent they aren't great at rebounding so maybe this is a Mike Mitchell series maybe you don't play Reggie as your starting two guard you move Michael Cooper down and you get Mike Mitchell in and you try and battle them on the boards a little bit and offensively I think that they're still going to score their points the 78 team like we said we've got Kobe dedicated as the guy that is just going to play the smothering defense and we did see that in High stakes, tough defensive matchups. Larry's production did drop a little bit. So I perhaps worry what an athletic locked in Kobe would do to Larry Bird. I still think he's going to get his points and really affect the game on a ton of levels. But if he's knocking that efficiency down and denying Bird the ball, are the 78 team going to be able to float? I don't know. Uh, offensively, I like Ray Richardson against Nash. They don't really have anyone there. And I really like the size. You are going to have to cover up for Steve Nash. So if they can mismatch Hunt and find some sort of ideal matchups, then maybe you can force a few easy points there. But then you do also have Camby as the rim protector, who's going to be as good, you know, a top 10% guy in league history for being a defensive player, being a rim deterrent. So. I don't know. I think if you're going to back the 78 team, you're back that they're a really good matchup defensively. They're going to be able to get out and transition and match the offensive rate in that 96 is going to be able to generate with all of that spacing and all of that talent. And you're also going to be back in Larry Bird to get the best of Kobe Bryant in a one-on-one matchup, which I don't know if I fancy. Like I said, Larry is a top ten player of all time for me. I love him to bits, and I, I could watch his highlights all day. He was so smooth. I saw a Twitter poll going around, who's the smoothest guy of all time on the court, or you know, sort of top five smoothest games. No one's mentioning Larry Bird. His highlights—he just looks like jelly sometimes. So. Go and watch some Larry Bird after this. I realise they've given you quite a lot of homework. But I think that's it for episode two of First in Class. You let me know who's going to win. You let me know if you like the breakdown, if you like the team selections. I try to be a little bit more informative, particularly about the 78 draft, because I know that a lot of guys listening to this aren't going to be too familiar with some of the games that we've discussed. But go and watch some Michael Ray Richardson. Go and watch some Michael Cooper and admire how good 80s Hoops was because it might look a little bit slow comparing it to nowadays, but these guys were seriously talented. They were part of the generation that saved the league and basically set it up for what it is now, this absolute behemoth. I'm going to post a poll on my Twitter as you you guys can vote. Let me know who wins, who goes through. I think we all know who's going through but I'd love some feedback and share with your friends. If there's anyone that's looking for something for the off season, I think first in class is going to be a really good series because we're going to get to discuss so many different players in depth. We're going to get to imagine all these fictional matchups and sort of argue about them. And you know, we're going to have closer matchups than this and the 96 team is eventually going to face off against some of the very best draft classes of all time. And I really want some debate going for who's going to win those. I think that we can really have quite a lot of fun this summer while we wait for the next season of the NBA. But that's it from me. I've been Jack Quantrill. Enjoy free agency as it rolls out over the next few days. And make sure you tune in next time for another episode of The Drop Step.